Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey there, welcome to the Other People Podcast. I am Brad Listy and I am in Los Angeles. It's good to be with you. I appreciate you tuning in and I hope you're doing okay wherever you happen to be right now. My guest today is Shannon McLeod, author of a new story collection called Nature Trail Stories. Well, I've also always been someone whose like major form of entertainment is taking walks. So it felt more so like the pandemic made that socially acceptable. So before I was the one asking friends to go take walks with me and it was a little odd, but now it seems a little more commonplace. A lot of these stories, or maybe about a quarter of these stories, a third of these stories I wrote before the pandemic, But I think it was during the pandemic that I started to see this pattern that, oh, I keep writing stories about characters who are walking or on nature trails. And it first started as a joke that I'm going to write a collection of nature trail stories. Wouldn't that be career suicide? Like no one would want to read that book. So I think I put that out just as a, you know, silly tweet a couple years ago. And then I was like, you know what? The best art projects start as a joke. I'm going to keep going with this and see where it goes. All right, that was Shannon McLeod. Her new story collection is called Nature Trail Stories. It is available this week from 30 West Publishing House. The characters in Nature Trail Stories are people at the margins, or at least they're living at the margins of their own day-to-day lives. They're a little bit isolated. They're a little bit wounded. They are seeking contact with nature. And whether they fully know it or not, they are seeking contact and community with other human beings. In Nature Trail Stories, there is a story about a housewife who is fantasizing about her own demise. There is a story about a young man who wishes to save 
his brother from the depths of addiction. There is a story of a mother trying to bond with her teenage son during lockdown. And there's a lovely story about a young woman who encounters both menace and healing at an outdoor music festival. It was really nice to catch up with Shannon McLeod, who is guesting on this program for a second time. You will hear our conversation momentarily. Today's episode is brought to you by Mariner Books, publisher of the novel Community Board by best-selling author Tara Conklin. You know what a community board is, right? They live online most of the time these days. There are lots of ridiculous posts by people complaining usually or giving away stuff that nobody really wants or maybe they do want it. A lot of uh, civic concerns, trash disposal, pet waste, and so on and so forth. In Community Board, this neighborhood message board is Darcy Clipper's greatest comfort. Darcy is in self-imposed solitude after her husband leaves her for his skydiving instructor. And she relies on her neighbor's posts for connection and company. Community Board is the latest novel from Tara Conklin, the New York Times bestselling author of The Last Romantics, which was the inaugural Read with Jenna pick. Community Board is a wise and big-hearted and funny novel about unplanned isolation and newly forged community, both online and IRL. That's Community Board by Tara Conklin, available March 28th, 2023, from Mariner Books. The Other People podcast is offered freely. There are no paywalls on this show. The entire archive is made available to listeners free of charge. It's wide open, more than 800 episodes and counting. All of it is available to listeners without any obstruction. Nobody likes paywalls, so I don't do a paywall. But what I am counting on is I am counting on regular listeners, people who love this show, people who feel like they get something from this show, people who love literary culture and would like to see it continue into the future. If that describes you, then I hope you will consider supporting this show at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. You can do so for as little as $1 a month. This is something else that I have endeavored to do. I am trying to make it a no brainer. I'm trying to make it painless. It's a sliding scale. So $1 a month, $3, 5, 10, 20, whatever you can afford. As you move up the scale, you can get merch. It's pretty straightforward. Just go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash other PPL pod and support this show and help keep it going. If you would like to get other people merchandise, a t-shirt, a sweatshirt, and so on and so forth, just go to the show's official website, otherppl.com, scroll down, look for the t-shirt, you'll find it. If you would like to sign up for my email newsletter, it goes out once a week, it's free. Sign up for that at otherppl.com or bradlisty.com. In the newsletter, I share what I've been reading and finding interesting or amusing or both. It's pretty straightforward. So check that out if you so desire. I also, of course, will let you know each week in the newsletter about the latest episodes of the podcast. If you have a couple of minutes and you would be so kind, I would appreciate it if you would rate and review this podcast wherever you listen to this podcast. So Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, whatever it is, 
rate the show. If it's possible to write a review, please do that. It helps new listeners find the show. If you would like to watch highlights of these conversations, you can do that on social media, TikTok, Instagram, or Twitter. The Twitter handle for this show is at other PPL. So follow the program on social media. You can also watch the other people podcast on the other people YouTube channel. So go to YouTube, search for the show by name, other PPL. And when you find the other people YouTube channel, hit the subscribe button. It's free. If you have feedback for me, the email address is letters at other PPL.com letters at other PPL.com. And if you would like to read my latest novel, it is called be brief and tell them everything. It is available now in trade paperback, ebook and audiobook. I read the audiobook, So check that out. If you feel like it, it's called be brief and tell them everything. So my guest, once again, is Shannon McLeod. Her new story collection is called Nature Trail Stories, and it is available from 30 West Publishing. This week, it just dropped, or it's about to drop. It's imminent, or it just dropped, one of those two. Shannon McLeod is the author of the novella Whimsy, which was published back in 2021, and an essay chapbook called Pathetic. Her writing has appeared in Tin House, Wig Leaf, Hobart, Joyland, and Prairie Schooner, among other publications. And her stories have been nominated for Best Small Fictions, Best of the Net, and have been featured in the Wig Leaf Top 50. Here she is, folks. This is my conversation with Shannon McLeod. And her new book, One More Time, is called Nature Trail Stories. That's when I started intentionally writing stories that were set on nature trails or had some sort of relationship to nature and being outside and finding little bits of the natural world amid cities as well. And yeah, a few years later, I've got a collection of them and uh, the joke has become a reality. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And I, I feel like part of my pandemic experience as like an avid walker myself I think a lot of writers are walkers and runners. Yeah. It's like some sort of ne- necessary behavior to kind of balance us out or something. But I, so I did too. find myself getting a, a little bit annoyed during the pandemic that suddenly the trails were flooded with people <laughs> who otherwise would not would not have been out there, but they just needed yeah. something to do, you know, or they, they couldn't go to the gym, you know, or whatever it was. And I was like, oh, you know, so now everybody has decided that this is the thing. Did you experience that? Were you sort of bummed out? <laughs> Yeah, somewhat. Uh, My favorite local trail, because I moved to Virginia about five years ago, and I didn't discover my favorite local trail until about a year before the pandemic. So I did definitely notice the difference between pre-pandemic, how crowded it was, uh, and afterwards. So it is a little bit like that experience of being a teenager and loving a niche band, and then it gets popular, and you're like, God damn it. <laughs> yeah. You're like, and you get it, you get all sort of like haughty about it. You're like, I, yeah, I used to I see, I used to before. see that. I used to see that band in small clubs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so are you willing to divulge what your favorite nature trail is? You live in Charlottesville, right? Yeah, that's right. Riverview Park is my favorite. And it is, it's not like a, a little known secret or anything. I, I do have those trails that are lesser known when I, I don't want to be around a bunch of children. But the plus side is a lot of people walk their dogs and I love 
seeing dogs on my walks too. So that's a plus. Yeah, I feel like too in this collection that in a lot of the stories, the characters that you're writing about are kind of oddballs or on the margins or are going through a period of change or something in life that has them feeling isolated or something like that. And mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it made me think of like my history as a hiker and a walker, hmm. but in particular as a hiker and a person who's kind of a creature of habit. And I think people who walk regularly have some of that tendency. Yeah. And it's funny when you see the same people over and over again on a trail. Mm-hmm. That's what I was feeling when I was reading this. I was like, oh, like I feel like maybe you were picking up characters on your regular hike in the park <laughs> or whatever. Is that true or false? <laughs> No, I don't think that's directly true for any of these. I mean, some of these are more inspired by my own life, but I, there, I don't think there are any characters that I witnessed on a trail that I then uh, fictionalized. That would have been a great idea, and I kind of wish that I had done that, but I definitely know what you mean about the regulars, where sometimes I see certain people on that trail that I'm at every other week. And I, I think they're my uncle or something. Cause I've seen them so many times. They look, have that familiarity about them. Well, yeah. And it's also like, Oh, so you're one, you know, you're one of uh, the weirdos too. That's yeah. kind of how I feel. <laughs> Start to see the same people. It's a uh-huh. little bit, hum- it's a little bit humbling almost. You're like, okay, why are we doing this every single day? And <laughs> what's interesting for me in Los Angeles is that there are so many, like, I believe they're like elderly Korean people a lot of couples too mm-hmm. uh, who hike first thing in the morning and i guess it's like a so, i mean it might, there's often groups so i guess it's like a social thing but it also has to be some kind of cultural thing because i'm like wow like you know so many older korean people are up hiking and then it's me and i've had like uh you know over the years you know time to sort of figure out who the regulars are and I'm always like waving and, yeah. you know, back and forth. <laughs> Do and they wave thinking, back? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's like this kind of like, you know, you sort of recognize one another, you know, for mm. your obsession. <laughs> but I'm wondering why we walk. I, I guess it is, I mean, it's good exercise. It's nice to get outside. I like to be in nature. I feel better after I do it. I think there's some kind of mood regulation component to it. Is this sounding familiar? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's one of the few times that I feel I allow myself to just stop and watch. And I I mean, a lot of the people I walk with, we don't seem like minded in in the way that I always have to stop and like, look at the turtles on the water or, you know, observe the new little plants that I've never seen before. And I just need to take those breaks to pause and watch and just be silent so wait 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 are you a social hiker are you going with people or are you usually alone uh probably 50 50 so when i go with people or or like with my husband i'm like i stop and just like suddenly stop talking and sometimes it gets a weird reaction (laughs) but then like more recently i i took a walk on this trail with a new friend that i had I had met recently and I stopped and she stopped too. And we kind of had the same sort of feeling in the air. I didn't sense any irritation. I'm like, okay, 
you're my new hiking buddy. Like we're on the same wavelength. Cause I feel like that's kind of rare. I mean, do you do the same thing or do Not you just, really. do you need movement, constant movement? I'm moving pretty much, especially on the way up. Cause I'm climbing and oh, I don't right. like to, I don't like to stop. I'm trying to like break a sweat and like get my heart rate up mm. to some, I don't know. Like that's part of like the, you get the high from that, which is I think what I'm kind of going for the endorphins, but ah, okay. I, uh, I Maybe probably should. And, and I'm listening to something. I'm always listening to like a Buddhism podcast. <laughs> uh, You're listening for, I mean, to a Buddhism podcast and you don't like pause to have that meditative moment. I'm not looking. I mean, there's occasionally there'll be like a deer or a coyote or something, but I'm not like looking at turtles. I don't know. Yeah. If there was a turtle to look at, I would look at it, but I'm not the person. <laughs> I'm not the person who pauses to like look at a leaf. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Maybe I should. Maybe I should. Yeah, try it. <laughs> so you will you will truly stop and just like gaze at a turtle for like a minute or two or longer. Yeah, absolutely. I need that. I need that in my life. <laughs> just to just to make yourself stop. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, otherwise and I I mean, speaking of like Buddhism and it being a meditative practice, like I do try to meditate every day, but it doesn't feel the same to me as being outside and walking and then stopping. And it doesn't feel the same to me as sitting outside on my porch. There's just something that I think pulls me out of my brain and makes me feel more connected. If I'm in a new place and witnessing something non-human but living in the moment, that feels more meditative to me than any other experience just sitting. Well, you can do walking meditation. I mean, that's kind of what I'm doing, I think. You know, you're supposed to pay attention to like the sensation of your footsteps touching the ground, which mm. isn't easy. It's not easy to stay yeah. locked in on that. Um, but that's kind of what I'm doing. But I suck at it. I, it's amazing how long I've been meditating and how, like, I guess bad at it. You know, my batting average in terms of actually staying f focused on what I'm supposed to be focusing on is not great but I keep doing it. I, I feel reassured hearing that because I feel the same way. <laughs> and I've been doing it my whole life, basically. Yeah, it's got to be normal. I think that's normal. I think, but I think that's yeah. part, I think that's actually the point is to just be aware of how often you're sort of getting pulled away. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But there's a time when I used to be able to meditate for like an hour and I don't know what happened. I can't do 10 minutes anymore. Really? Yeah. Okay, but wait, you say you've been doing this your whole life. Did I know that? Did we talk about that last time? No, I don't think we did. No, I, yeah, the religion I was raised in was very much rooted in meditation. What um, religion is that? Self-realization fellowship. Oh, right. Have you heard there's of one it? of the, yeah, there's one of those right here in LA. I want to say that's yeah. like the, uh, what is it, Yogananda or that's, who is it? Yep, Yogananda. Yeah, LA is definitely like, I mean, anybody I talk to in Michigan or here in Virginia, like, mention it they're like no never heard of that sounds culty i'm like yeah <laughs> it's a more of a benign cult but yeah he lived in la or in malibu when he moved from india in the 1950s and lake shrine is like an incredible beautiful place in malibu where there are these trails and swami beach and there's all these little like tourist spots that i hit up that my dad brought me to when i was a kid because he's obsessed with Yogananda and Self-Realization Fellowship. But yeah, so I grew up doing this 
Oh my God. Okay. So in, it isn't, I want to say Yogananda was, that was who Steve Jobs was into. I think he read really? the book. Is Autobiography of a Yogi by yes. Yogananda? Yeah. Mm-hmm. He used, Steve Jobs used to give that book out like as a gift, like really? regularly. Okay. See, I knew about the Beatles. I mean, like Yogananda is on the cover of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band along with the other gurus of Self-Realization Fellowship, but I didn't know about Steve Jobs. Okay. So what was it like? Because now, but I feel like this is connected to the fact that you wrote a collection called Nature Trail Stories. I mean- I think so. There's some thread. There's at least one thread from- There's something sel- there. From self-realization to looking at turtles. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I mean, and it might also just be my dad because he's also very into nature and it's where I got my love of taking walks. He studied botany and um, oh. is an avid- gardener used to work for the USDA and for some organic art uh organic farms so I think that's all wrapped up together but definitely I think the nature component and meditation and mindfulness is all kind of wrapped into uh itself okay so just to satisfy my curiosity because I don't know enough about uh, any of this but Yogananda was Hindu or Buddhist yeah he was Hindu but brought his religion to the West, kind of like marrying it with Christianity. So his teachings come from both the Bhagavad Gita and the Bible. And it's kind of like all of his interpretations of it. And I'm by no means a scholar. This is all based on me going to church when I was a kid. And in high school and college, I lived and worked at this yoga retreat that was based on the religion that was kind of more like a spiritual commune. So all of my knowledge is kind of from that, like I, I'm not a member of the church anymore. I just still try to meditate. But so it's sort of like a Hindu Christian fusion through the eyes of Yogananda, and he's written a ton of books. And so that is, yeah, the the guru that a lot of people follow, and that um, he's the guy who who founded this religion. Was he dead when you were a kid? Like I don't even know when he lived till. Like did he? Yeah, I think I think he died in like 1980 or the 70s, maybe? Gosh, I'm not going to... I can't let my dad listen to this because he'll be like so ashamed. But yeah, and like the lore goes that he decided when he was going to leave his body and when he died, his body smelled like roses. That was one thing. (laughs) As soon as people start... And like there's also... I've heard these these, uh, stories which seem apocryphal about like you know, certain advanced beings dying and then their corpse like shrinks and like basically disappears. So all that's left is like hair and nails, which A, is disgusting, right? It's like, okay, (laughs) I don't know why this is considered a virtue. This is, this sounds like horrific to me, but why do we need to go there? Why do we need to mythologize this stuff? He was a person, he died. He didn't smell like roses. Enough already. Yeah, we can. I, I think we should be able to appreciate the teachings of a very wise person without having to believe they were magic. Yes. I mean, I don't know if you ever have read any of autobiography of a yogi, but a lot of the stories were basically like he did this thing that was magical <laughs> because he is so enlightened. I'm willing to cons- I'm willing to believe that that might be possible. I've never laid eyes on one bit of human magic in my life. Like nobody's ever levitated. I've never had somebody, I've never seen a ghost. I've never had somebody read my mind in a serious way. That's not to say that this stuff doesn't maybe happen, but I've just never seen it. Yeah. So I'm skeptical. And I think too, like, I'm a, I'm always a little, I'm always a little leery of guru culture. Mm-hmm. And 
this would extend even to people like the Dalai Lama. Like, like, okay, here's what I would say. Guru culture and also like hereditary guru culture. The thing that I get a, a little bit bugged out by is when it's like, oh yeah, he was born as the reincarnation of. Right. Because th- then these who people- Who decided that? <laughs> yeah, who decided that? And then these people are, are essentially raised like royalty. You know, right. they never they never really have to be a real human being in the world. They're considered deities almost. And so I don't know. I think that actually is a strike against them for me because I'm like, I don't know. I don't know if I fully buy this and maybe it's real. Yeah, but absolutely. I like it better when I it's just like I, I like it better when it's just like somebody who's just some person from especially when they're like from the wrong side of the tracks or whatever, like they have no advantages in life, but they've managed to mm-hmm. a- attain some kind of deep understanding that feels more believable to me. Well, there probably are those people, but they wouldn't have the resources for you to know about them. Often, but sometimes they do. I mean, I feel like a guy like, like Thich Nhat Hanh, I'm a huge fan of Ajahn Chah. These are just like poor people, relatively poor people from mm. Southeast Asia. Like they didn't have any, Nobody, nobody like anointed them, you know, but they emerged hmm. because on the, based on the strength of their like charisma and teachings and whatever, uh, I think that's, that's always possible, right? Somebody's really smart, gets good at something, becomes a teacher. Like that, Becomes that seems Steve like. Not Han or Steve Jobs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Hey everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. But anyway, the uh, I'm curious. I, I want to know about uh, because you were raised in Michigan. Yeah, that doesn't seem that's like right. a place that's like a hotbed for like Yogananda disciples. That yeah, I was. No. I'm I'm from the Midwest. I never met a Yogananda disciple during my time in Wisconsin. <laughs> So you must have been sort of an oddball. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I wanted nothing more when I was a kid than to go to like a real church and not a place that was in an office building where we just set up a bunch of chairs and meditated with a small group of random people from the area. It was always like, you know, once it was in a, our church was in a uh, private school, like in a classroom on Sundays. It was in an office building next to my dentist. 
it was and I think still is above a bank. Um, so it's not like a real, it doesn't look like a church. Um, and I just feel like I always heard about Christianity and most of my friends were Christian, but I, you know, I didn't even meet another vegetarian because that's part of the religion too until I don't know. I don't know when. <laughs> I was always a weirdo for that. And our, my house growing up had pictures of Yogananda everywhere. So I was always just like very embarrassed and like felt othered <laughs> and strange. And like I had to hide this about myself. Where were the pictures of Yogananda in your house? In the living room, in my parents' bedroom, <laughs> probably one in the kitchen. But, uh -huh. you know, so and, and that's not so strange if it's Jesus. But that's right. Yeah. Most people were like they uh, I remember friends coming over and because Yogananda had very long hair and they'd look at the picture and be like, who's she? <laughs> Is that your relative? Is that your grandma? <laughs> Yes. Your yes. Distant it Indian is my, relative. <laughs> it is my distant grandmother. But that's wild. That's wild. And but I feel like maybe now do you do you have appreciation for it? Like do you look back fondly and say, Yeah, I'm glad I mean I feel like you kind of yeah. did okay yeah. in the grand scheme of things, considering what you could have been up against with some of these Christian sects. Yeah, and, absolutely. I mean, I, I feel grateful for my relationship with well, with the natural world, with that I was raised to like appreciate all beings and like care for animals and there's less materialism than a lot of uh at least certain sects of christianity there's not a lot of shaming there's no you need to be afraid of hell i think my relationship with the idea of death is probably much more comfortable and comforting because i was raised with the idea of reincarnation and that, you know, when you die, you just leave your body. So I think that, I mean, I'm certainly still afraid of death, but I, I think there were, there were some pretty good belief systems in terms of religious foundational belief systems that can be fed to a child. I think this one was pretty, pretty preferable over a lot of others. <laughs> yeah, like relatively benign. Yes. Uh, but nowadays you say you can't meditate for more than 10 minutes, even though you used to be able to go for like an hour at a time. Yeah. Do, do, you know, do you know why? I don't know. I mean, I went a while. I think for a while I had this sort of like rebellion against the religion and I was just tired of being told that I can fix everything in my life by meditating because that's really frustrating, especially when you struggle with, as I have with mental health issues and like anxiety and depression like you don't want to be told that it's your fault that you feel this way and you just need to choose to be happy which was a big belief of the religion and i think one that is a, a little more harmful is that i was always told you need to choose to be happy just choose to be happy and i think there <laughs> is some truth to that but of course that's uh, minimizing a lot of external factors and things i think you know i didn't like seek out therapy or medication for a really long time because there was a lot of shame in the fact that, oh, you're having trouble living your life and maybe you don't want to live all the time. Well, that's your own personal feeling and, and you don't have the faith or dedication to your own practice of spirituality. And that that is really difficult. So I struggled with that for a long time. And I kind of just more recently 
started connecting to different forms of mindfulness that are not related to this religion because I still have a little bit of prickly feelings about it in that way. I bet. Yeah, I can, I relate to that, but in a different way. I think often, mm. I mean, because I was raised Catholic, I was not, there were no pictures of Yogananda in my house. Though my grandmother, there was like a big, like like one of these big old sort of standard issue paintings or reproductions of the last supper oh nice. i distinctly remember it from my grandparents kitchen mm-hmm. in south louisiana where you'd be sitting at their kitchen table and you know we're italian so we'd be like eating pasta and i'd be looking yeah. up and like oh wow jesus would be <laughs> <laughs> but i think if you are raised in a religion that you don't fully subscribe to or that doesn't feel true to you or that, I don't know, just if you have any kind of doubt or um, if it's not a, a hand in glove fit, it's easy to feel a little bit embittered. It's a big, mm-hmm. it can feel like a big, I, like I, I relate to this feeling, this idea of feeling, especially in your youth, like there was a failing happening because you weren't good enough at it or you didn't believe hard enough or you just didn't right? get it. it so of course you're going to feel a little bit bitter later on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's they can only sell religion if they can advertise it as it's going to fix all of your problems. So then you tend to think that it's your own fault for not believing hard enough when you still have problems. <laughs> well, and I think too, like and I think this is this is an interesting space especially with contemplative like more the more contemplative meditative uh, practices that you tend to see in Eastern religions is the middle ground between say Western psychotherapy and Western pharmacology and Eastern meditation practice and like how to bridge, how and when to bridge that divide. Do you know what I'm saying? Because Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I do think in like really kind of doctrinaire Eastern meditative practice, there might not be much understanding of, say, drugs to help you with depression or anxiety. Do you know what I'm, you know what I'm talking about? Like how, yeah, yeah. I don't know absolutely. if there's much, I don't know if, I think it's, it's changing, but I don't know if the, like traditionally there had been much dialogue between the two. I would be interested to hear from more folks who, who are educated on that, that intersection, because it does seem important. It's like, yeah, there's, there. I don't think you should believe that drugs are going to fix everything in your life, but I don't think you should believe religion is going to fix everything in your life. And I, I do in ways crave the relationship my dad had with religion or still has because, and, and other people have with their faith because it does seem so comforting and to provide guidance. But when you when you don't really have that, then you're just kind of relying on yourself and trying to figure out what's the right concoction of yeah, mindfulness, religion, self-exploration, and, and working on improving yourself, self-improvement, and drugs if you're <laughs> open to them. <laughs> so are, are there any pictures of Yogananda in your house currently or no? Um, right now, I have a stack of all of the Yogananda books my dad's given me over the years in a bag in my closet. Okay. So there's that. <laughs> there's that. So let's go. Uh, I want to turn back to your book, and I want to talk about the char- like the characters that you're drawing 
in these stories. And I just, I guess I kept thinking to myself, so many of them feel like they're at the margins. And I want to know more about why these kinds of characters and these kinds of people. I think to some extent, every, it's going to sound really narcissistic, but aren't all writers narcissists to some extent? I was going to say, all the characters are me, you know? Well, there's, there's always some sort of emotional truth to them. And I think I have to have experienced it firsthand to be able to write them. And maybe that's not true for all writers, but it's true for me. So I think every character that I've written in these stories, they were created to explore something that I'm struggling with at the time. I just try to vary like the circumstances either to heighten the experience of whatever this emotion or internal conflict is, or because I'm just interested in in exploring different types of characters and also a little bit for the diversity of the collection, because that is one thing about having a constraint on yourself of trying to write a whole collection of stories set on nature trails. If the setting is the same in all of the stories, like your characters and conflicts better be pretty different for it to stay interesting, both for yourself as the writer and for the reader. So it was kind of a, a mixture of those things. So, and, and you talked about like tweeting about it and sort of like making a joke and then kind of following through on the joke. How many, and forgive me if you already said this, but I'm just trying to trace the, the history of the collection. Like how many nature trail stories had you written by the time you made the joke or had you? Um, probably like five to seven, I think okay. five maybe. Yeah. It's hard to say. I think okay, but are, I mean, and then how many, yeah. let's, I'm trying to remember. I know, I'm like, oh, I got to count. But there's about, so you've written like a good, a good amount of them, probably 10 altogether. Yeah, I think there's 12 in the collection. And so that was the challenge that you gave yourself is that like in terms of trying to create a collection with thematic unity, you're like every single one of these is going to somehow involve nature. I'm trying yeah. to remember if any of if if all of them are outside and on on a trail. Not really. Like especially, I'm thinking of the last story, uh, which yeah, I yeah, that was kind of um, yeah, that one was was uh, put in a little bit. That some of them are a little more of a stretch. I tried to make sure the ones that are more blatantly on a nature trail were in the beginning, but then I I take a little bit more liberties. Um, there is a nature trail in the last story, but it's kind of just. Uh, in passing during a music festival that she's at and and the main character kind of sees the trail reflect her attitude toward being at the music festival at first it's this like beautiful exciting unifying experience and then she starts seeing all the trash everywhere and feels kind of grossed out by the people she in, in, interacts with so that was put in there as sort of a parallel of the uh the character's experience I didn't feel like it was like far afield. Like, you know what I'm saying? I, I felt like there's plenty okay, of nature. Uh, they're, in, they're, in, they're at an outdoor music festival in like, I think yeah. rural Michigan, right? Mm-hmm. On a farm. So it felt very, very nature to me. And I love that story. It's called Easier to Convince. And yeah. I think as I was reading it, what I was thinking to myself was, I love the fact that this story takes place at a music festival. We need more <laughs> narratives set at music festivals they're such rich environments like that 
I think back to the like the fest, like the you know quote unquote festival experiences of my youth, or like the concert experiences that required travel and like overnight stays. Those are some of the most intense experiences of my life. Right, and you interact with so many different people on such a short time span, and like everybody is immediately your friend if you just talk to them or share food or drinks or drugs or something, and and it's just ripe for so much conflict and and strange interactions. It's also interesting to me at the level of collective human energy. Like there is some truth, I think, to the notion that you put, you know, 10,000 people in the same building or at the same amphitheater together. And then especially if everyone's like a lot of people are on drugs. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, I mean, I have felt that before. I feel that anytime I go to any concert really where there's a good, a good crowd and it just feels, it feels very palpably real to me whether, and you know what, I can experience it sober or not. It's not contingent Mm -hmm. upon being like whacked out on drugs. I think you feel that when you're in a room, I think you can feel that at a sporting event, to be honest, anytime you put a lot of human beings in the same place, you feel it. But I think at a Mm -hmm. music festival, where people are there for like Dionysian reasons, you know, where you're, you're sort of there to celebrate and to kind of have fun. And when people come with that intention and there is like the f- a festival atmosphere, you feel that energy, you know? And then sometimes, of course, it can go sideways. <laughs> right. Yeah. You're elated and, and feel such a beautiful connection to people one minute and the next minute, as was my experience the last time I went to a music festival, you think everyone you look at is trying to kill you. Really? Oh, that happened to you? Yeah, that was the last time I went. (laughs) Right. Okay. Okay. But like, let's talk about this. How long ago was this? (laughs) Um, It was my senior year of college. So uh, yeah, yeah, I guess I was like 21 or something. Right. That sounds about right. And so I'm imagining it was psychedelics and you had a paranoid Something episode. Something like that. <laughs> yeah. It's funny because I just got a notification or what was it? No, I saw on social media the uh, Grateful Dead Instagram feed, which I am a follower of. They were like, and by the way, there's a story in your book which allude to the Grateful Dead. But Yes. Um, <laughs> I received, like, I saw the Grateful Dead post and it was like 29 years ago today. This was on March 4th. I actually remember Mm -hmm. the day. 29 years ago today, you know, at Desert Sky Amphitheater in Arizona, you know, the dead played a run of three shows. Well, I was there and (laughs) my my friend, uh, a friend of mine who shall go nameless, like, ate too many mushrooms. (laughs) (laughs) And somehow convinced himself that he was dehydrating. This was before the show even started. This was before the show even started. The sun had not set. And like, (laughs) we're just like sitting in the lawn. If you can try to uh, picture this, we're like sitting in the lawn at the amphitheater with our group, all of whom, except for me, had eaten way too many mushrooms. Oh, no. Like, just like 19 years old, had no idea what we were doing, but I at least was paranoid enough to be like, I'm not having that many. I'm going to go slow. I don't know what I'm doing, you know? And, uh, that served me well. But anyway, yeah. we're sitting there and uh, my, my buddy looks at me and he's like, hey, man, am I all right? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I was like, yeah, you're fine. Yeah, the good concert's starting soon. Like, we're good, man. And he's like, no, do I look all right? And I was like, 
you look fine. (laughs) (laughs) And all of a sudden he just gets up and he starts walking up towards the, and you know, it's a crowd, crowded environment. There's a lot of, you know, and a lot of energy. The mushrooms are coming on and I don't see my friend for the rest of the concert. Oh my gosh. Were you worried? (laughs) I mean, yeah, but also I was like, oh, he'll figure it out. Uh, You know, what's the worst that can happen? Yeah. So we, you know, then the concert ends and I actually do start to get worried because I'm like, okay, so where is he now? But then I just figure like, oh, we'll, we'll go back to the car and we'll find him there. And sure enough, we go back and I see him in the distance and he's just like sitting like cross-legged on the gravel, like smoking a cigarette. <laughs> <laughs> That'll help and your he's dehydration. Got this, yeah. He's got this look in his, on his, uh, on his face, like I've got a story to tell you. And it turned out that he had like walked like straight up the lawn to like where the fence was. And there was like one of these security guys in like a yellow shirt or whatever. And he just goes up to one of them and he's like, I just ate way too many mushrooms. I think I'm dehydrating. I'm scared I'm going to dehydrate and I'm going to die. <laughs> the guy's like, come on. You know, he's like, come with me. And he's like, do you have any drugs on you? And he's like, I have a bag of weed in my pocket. And he's like, get rid of it. So he takes like a, <laughs> a brand new bag of weed and just throws it like into the air. And it like, of course, probably lands in some like deadhead's lap. And they yeah, thought it was like, like mir- miraculous. <laughs> it was like, it was, a, it was a divine, you know, divine moment. But they take him backstage and uh, there there are, of course, like people there to help people who are bugging out on psychedelics at any dead show. Yeah, you would hope like, that there would be like a medical tent at a dead show. There is a medical tent. And yeah. it's like these people are from like, I think what's called the Haight-Ashbury Free Clinic. And uh-huh. so he's back there and there's also all these off-duty cops or like cops who are there to provide security, but they're like taking a break. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he like goes up to like a group of them and starts like berating them, <laughs> asking them if they read. He's like, you guys are illiterate. Like, you know, just like <laughs> jabbering at these cops. These cops are just looking at him. And uh, then he asks to speak to John Lennon. I mean, like, just like mm. it was bananas. And he was recalling this to me. Uh, and then finally came down towards the end of the show and was essentially side stage. He had like backstage passes. Oh, wow. That worked out. <laughs> I mean, yeah, but he's essentially side stage and the dead are playing their encore. And he's suddenly like, wait a minute, the Grateful Dead are here? That's <laughs> <I mean, laughs> how bonkers it was. So uh, it's a funny story to this day. I mean, it wasn't funny, I guess, for him when it was happening, but we've been laughing about it yeah. for 30 years. Oh my gosh. At least he got to enjoy the encore. Kind of. <laughs> I mean, I think like by the, I, I don't think he was fully there. You, you know, I think it was honestly like shocking to him that the Grateful Dead were actually there. <laughs> uh, so I can relate to this notion of feeling like everyone's there to kill you. In fact, I think that's actually not that uncommon for a psychedelic experience in a huge crowded space like that to sort yeah. to turn sort of paranoid, right? Yeah. Like the, the energy and the weirdness and the people making eye contact with you and like you become hypersensitive to like facial expressions and other Mm -hmm. social cues. And it can be easy to sort of spiral, right? Yeah. And I already feel like that to some extent. So it was just a bad (laughs) idea. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So those are the ways that festival experiences can kind of turn on you. But I feel- The highs are high and the lows are low. That's right. That's right. It's like a uh, you're in the trenches sort of when you're there. And I think too, like- you know, some of these experiences involve like camping overnight and there's like, like genuine, there's like a genuine nature experience sort of attached. And that maybe heightens the intensity 
also can be a lot of fun, but that's part of it in the story that you've written. And I just loved it. I don't know. I loved oh, thank it. Thank you. And is this is the festival experience that you're describing in the story? Is it tied to was this bad the the bad experience that you had was it at a festival in rural Michigan? Yeah, so like I'm not great at invent like I can invent characters and in conflict, but I'm not great at inventing settings. So I, I definitely visualized what was called the harvest gathering in Michigan. And I think that I think it still happens. Um, that's in Cadillac, Michigan. Yeah, middle of nowhere. You've probably never heard of it, but um on this uh musician's family farm. So that was pretty similar to it. And it was a festival I went to like the summer before my senior year of high school and then a few times in college and it's just like the first year it was amazing and then each year it got more crowded and uh -huh. I got kind of more over it and then the last time was just horrible <laughs> <laughs> um the part about me uh, about the character where the character pees on a on a porta potty where the where the lid is down yeah that part was true that happened to me there uh, yeah yeah <laughs> Yeah, so it's like these things have tend to have diminishing returns, right? The mm -hmm. first time's always the best. And yeah, then yeah. By the end, you're like, this is filthy. <laughs> I've stayed at the party too long. I've stayed yeah. at the party too long. Yeah. <laughs> but when it's good, it's good. Yep, I'll cherish those memories, and it was really fun to put them in a story. <laughs> so, what about the actual writing of these stories, and like just like your habits? Like, do you? Uh, have like a ritual in that sense or were you just finding pockets of time? I know you teach, so I'm just curious. I'm always curious to know how people get the work done. Yeah, I have not been great at having a ritual of it lately, except for writing, um, like journaling in the morning lately, but I'll definitely go on stints of, of having goals, especially over the summer. If I'm working on a novel, like I'll have a goal of writing a thousand words a day and making sure I write every day. And sometimes what comes out of that is good. And a lot of times it's not. But typically with short stories, it feels more organic. I'll get an idea and then I feel like I have to write it. And I have the most fun when I'm writing short stories. So it's really exciting to be able to put a collection out there because that's when I really feel just captivated by the idea and the need to write is when I'm writing a short story. So those I'll tend to write during like, well, whenever I have time. Yeah. Okay. But I'm curious to know why should, but the short fiction feels better to you than trying to work in a longer form. Yeah, generally. Even my last book, Whimsy, I kind of approached it like a short story collection. Like each chapter I wrote as if it were a short story. Um, but the other novels that I've written have felt a little bit more laborious. I mean, I guess that's the nature of writing something more long form. You have to put more hours into it. So then when I'm working on a, on a book length project, like a novel, that's usually when I'll prescribe myself a schedule. But short stories, I just kind of write when I feel like it. That is the beauty of having a day job and being a writer. Can you can you get a draft done in a sitting? Like cause some of these are pretty short. I mean, I'm just wondering. Yeah, if like flash fiction. Yeah, a lot of these are drafted in one sitting. Easier to convince that that last story we were just talking about. That's the most recent one that I wrote and actually one that I wrote after I sold the collection. And I'm like, oh, I'd really like to add this in, can I? And that took a while. That I was working on for several weeks or maybe a couple months over the, this past summer. So that felt like it it took more 
more time and dedication and I really had to chip away at it. But it's also a longer story. But I do really enjoy flash fiction and being able to sit down and crank out a whole story in one sitting. It's it's a really thrilling experience. Well, it's also like, it's nice to have a feeling of getting something done. I think part of the drag of writing like a book length project or, you know, novel or a book length work of nonfiction is that you have to live in that like state of limbo for so long of, is it going to be a thing? Is it not going to be a thing? Does it Uh suck? Is it good? What, you know, I've been working on this for four years and I'm still not done. Like all that kind of stuff. It can become emotionally taxing. Yeah, absolutely. And I I don't know if I'm cut out for that. (laughs) I mean, I'm amazed by your most recent book, like be brief and tell them everything. (laughs) Now I'm blanking for a second on. No, that's right. That's right. How long were you working on that? It was like a decade. But I mean, there were there were there were like entire bad books. Many iterations of it. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, it was everything. It was like me writing away from it to try to escape it. And then there are other times where I was trying to you know, just go take a left turn and write something silly and, you know, all the different <laughs> things that we, that we do to try to avoid ourselves. And yes. it's such a consistent pattern. I mean, not everybody does it, but a lot of writers do. It's like, oh, I've heard it so many times where it's like, I finally sat down and just started writing about the thing that I didn't want to write about. And lo and right. behold, <laughs> everybody loved it. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. Like, that was the breakthrough. <laughs> but I feel like just between you and me, I feel like easier to convince could be broken out into a novel. Like, I don't feel like it. I don't feel like, like as a reader, I was like, oh, I want to keep going. Like, I thought that there could be more to explore. And now that we're talking and you've been telling me about your history with this festival in Michigan, like, it would be funny to write a novel about a young woman in college and her four experiences at the same music festival, each one Ooh. sucking. <laughs> okay, <Each> one. <laughs> thank you. I'll take that idea and run with it. Because that is a story that, I mean, that's probably the longest short story that I've ever written. And I, I did want to write more. And actually, that is a story that, like the the kernel, the most important conflict in that story I tried to write into a novel and I've been trying to write into a novel for the last several years, but it was a completely different setting. It was kind of like a scary setting, like more of a a ghostly, dark novel idea. And then it was just like one night when I was listening to a band that I first heard at this music festival and thinking about how happy I was there and what wait, what what band? Breathe Owl Breathe. And sadly, like their first two albums that I were so important to me emotionally during those years, I cannot find anywhere now. And like you can't access online, but their more recent stuff is fine too. But like if you're listening, Breathe Owl Breathe, bring back climb in i need to listen to it again um besides Wait, it's called like like owl like like the bird owl it's called breathe, breathe owl, owl breathe. breathe is the band yeah and i was obsessed with them and would see them every chance i could get through like late high school and early college and so anyway just like writing about something difficult which that story a lot of it is about dealing with childhood sexual trauma like i couldn't write about it in a scary dark setting I kept trying to thinking like oh this is the sort of cinematic novel that will sell but I just I emotionally could not do it and then when I put that same sort of 
struggle into a setting that felt more fun and comforting where I could include some humor and some narrative arcs about friendship and just other things to sort of bring some levity to the story, that's when it clicked and when I was able to write it. And so I think kind of like what you're saying about your novel, like trying to get to it from a bunch of different angles, like I I had to try a bunch of different ways before I could write about it in a way that that worked and felt right. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense and sounds familiar. And I feel like some of it is temporal distance. I think like if we're writing about trauma or from some sort of difficult lived experience, like however much we may be fictionalizing, if there's that kind of core of truth to it, then sometimes you just need time mm-hmm. and perspective. And the reason why earlier iterations don't work is because you can't see it clearly, you know, yeah. you're too emotional. Yeah, absolutely. And then, but I don't think that's the only determining factor. Like, like you say, it could be a creative decision involving like where to set the thing. Mm-hmm. And like, do you, do you tell the story in a more like realistic from lived, like from lived experience and memory way, or do you take that lived experience and transpose it onto a new setting and with different characters involved or whatever it is, right. you know what I'm saying? Like Which is, sometimes yeah, that's, that's the linchpin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like you need to feel safe. Yeah, but I found as a reader that having that dark element to the story where the protagonist is confronting her abuser at a music festival, but it's not like the whole story. It's sort it's mm-hmm. sort of happening some of the time. It's like a, almost like a scary sideshow aspect to it. And that feels yeah. true to life to me. I feel like a lot of times that's how this stuff happens. It's like, you're actually kind of having a good time, but then it's like, oh, there's my nightmare. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah. uh, Yeah. You know, so it's not all one way, Uh, you know, not that, not that it can't happen that way too, but I feel like maybe especially at music festivals, it is this weird hybrid often (laughs) of like operatic psychodrama and then like goofy party stuff and you know, friends having a falling out at night, but then making up in the morning mm. and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> so I liked the I liked the choice and I can understand how it liberated you. Yeah, yeah. That was a really important story to me. And I'm nervous to put it out in the world, but it it feels pretty monumental to me personally. It was my favorite story. Oh, thank you. That's really, yeah. really nice to hear. I liked it. I loved it. I thought it was really good. And uh, I want to see the novel version. All right. Well, I'll get cracking. Yeah, I've thrown down the gauntlet for you. <laughs> um, so thank you. I'm wondering about, and I don't, forgive me if I don't know if we talked about this the last time we spoke, but I'm always curious the way that, uh, about the ways that a person's day job feeds their creative life. And I know you teach high school English, or at least you did. You still do? I used to. Now I'm a reading specialist at an elementary school. Oh, okay. So it's it's quite a bit different. And it did, yeah, my, my teaching job definitely directly impacted my novella Whimsy, which we were talking about last time I was on the podcast. And this job now, it hasn't really come into my... I've only been doing it for a little over a year at this point. 
it hasn't really directly come into my short stories or novels, but I did dabble with writing a middle grade novel this fall, and, and that was really fun. So that's where it came to influence my writing, just getting me to break out into experimenting with writing for a different audience. Well, yeah. What's the status of that project? It's with an editor who's going to give me some feedback, but it it's a tricky situation because the reason I wrote it is that I work with mostly third and fifth graders, but first through fifth grade. Um, I became a reading specialist because as a high school teacher, I also worked with students who were who couldn't read, who were reading at like a second grade level. And I did not know how to teach a child how to read because when you become a high school English teacher, they don't teach you how to teach phonics and just the basics of literacy. So that's why I went into the education, the master's in literacy program. And then since I started working with older elementary school students, I I see similarities in these students being really frustrated with the kind of texts that they can access because there are children's books that are written about protagonists who are like four and five years old and they're 11 and it feels really demeaning and shameful for them to be learning how to read with these books that are clearly not written for them. Um, So this novel that I wrote, it's about a sixth grader, but it's written at about a second or third grade level. And the publishing industry does not really have space for that sort of thing because they write to age levels and they have expectations for those age level readers that the books that they publish in middle grade or YA are going to be so many pages long, are going to have such and such type of language. So if you're trying to write something for readers who are a little bit older, but reading at a lower grade level, you kind of get shut out of the publishing industry, at least from my experience so far and from what my agents told me. It's tough and it really, really stinks because those kids deserve to have books that they connect with on a personal level and can access and build confidence in their reading. Yeah, that feels like a worthy niche. I mean, I know it's, I think the problem is that it's probably a pretty small niche when you start to break out the numbers in terms of how many mm-hmm. young students need that sort of thing. But I hear what you're saying. But it's growing. But it's growing, yeah. And I think there are enough, broadly speaking, that if a publisher opted to try to own that niche, it could probably be profitable. Yeah. I mean, and I think that's why books like Diary of a Wimpy Kid and other graphic novels are so wildly popular, because at least the text is limited on the page, which is a big psychological obstacle that a struggling reader needs to get over is like, how many words are on this page? Because if you look at a a page with hundreds of words on it, and you struggle to decode each of those words, you're just going to shut down the same way I would shut down if I saw a, a super long contract and I tried to read it or a bunch of math problems or my tax forms. I'm just like, no, screw this. I can't do it. You That's know? a good point. That's a good point. So for people who are hyperliterate, like most writers are, and they're like, what could we, you know, what do you mean you can't read a page? Mm-hmm. Think, think about how you feel when somebody puts like a really dense piece of like legal paperwork in front of you. 
You just yeah, go, uh, or... I, I do that. I just shut down. I'm just like, okay, yeah, I don't yeah. even know. I can't read this. It's too, it's like too much or something. So mm-hmm. that's how it feels. Uh, well, yeah, I, absolutely. I, I hope that somebody comes through for you. That sounds like a cool project. And I have to believe too, you know, to write to that age range, whether you're writing for people who are struggling as readers or you're writing for a more like general audience in that age group, it seems to me that you would have a built-in advantage if you're working with these kids every day. You would have like a, mm-hmm. a much more like finely tuned sense of the audience than I would have. Though I guess like, you know, I have kids, so I have at least some sense of my own children. But I feel like if you're actually in a group of kids and really get to see what they respond to, that it would make you sensitive to what works, no? Yeah, and to see what they're daily conflicts are like too, I think is, is another thing. This book that I wrote was set in a school. So it was good to see, you know, the way the students perceive their teachers and the sort of interpersonal conflicts they have. It was really fun to write. So even if it doesn't go anywhere, it was, it was a fun experience, but uh, I would like to pursue more of that type of writing in the future. You would. Okay. So you think you're going to write YA? I don't know. I mean, I've tried to write traditional YA novels before and the voice never really clicked for me. So I'm not sure. I mean, I I hate to make set predictions or commitments to the type of writing I'm going to do in the future because my interests shift so rapidly. I'm one of those people who has a new hobby or three new hobbies every year and, and writing in general is the first thing that's stuck for me for a long time. So I, I hate to constrain myself any further. So what are your hobbies right now? Um, I'm really into loom knitting and uh, block print making and pole dancing. Those are my three biggies right now. Wow. Okay. That I, I learned how to do all of them in the last year. <laughs> really? That's cool though. Like to be like, I think like a voracious learner. I know a couple of people like that. They're always like picking something up and like trying to master new skills. But like, do you have it's fun? Do you have a loom? Like you have a loom then if you're loom knitting. Yeah. Well, so loom knitting is like, a, <laughs> this won't work for the podcast, but I can show you it's right over here. It's like um, a bunch of pegs where you kind of just loop yarn around it. And so far, the only thing I know how to make is hats. So I make everyone I know uh uh, like a beanie. <laughs> I feel. I feel like I was um, loom knitting really in school. Fun. I think I had like a loom knitting. Oh yeah, maybe you did. Yeah, I feel like we did some of that. But the I mean, pegs. I, yeah, but I couldn't yeah, do it. Yeah, it's really great because it's mindless. Because I've done regular knitting and crocheting, and it's like it takes too much of my focus. I like to listen to an audiobook or a podcast while I'm doing it, and I can't keep tr- like with crocheting you have to kind of keep track of your stitches and your and count things and like I don't want to count anything I just want to mindlessly move my fingers and and move the yarn around and make something that I can give away it's meditative yes yeah speaking of just different forms of meditation so wait so there's loom knitting and then what were the it was pole dancing and what was the third one um, block print making. So carving into blocks and then printmaking. I don't, I don't know if that's the right term, but yeah, you just roll ink over it. You carve your design, roll ink over it, and then press it onto paper. And it's really fun. So what and have you been making? 
Um, I've made a few like promo thing. I made Christmas cards, but I also made one that I think I sent you one of them. Take a walk, like a a print of uh, trees and a river, and it says take a walk. And then I have another one of a snail because I'm obsessed with snails that says go slow. And I have one that says nature trail stories. Why are you obsessed with snails? Just because they go slow? Um, that might be part of it, but the origin story, I'm actually writing an essay about the origin story right now, but, um, I have a vast snail figurine collection. That's kind of absurd. <laughs> like precious moments figurines or what? Like little porcelain, yeah. uh, snails, oh. but it all started with buying a snail shaped planter, like with flowers in it. And then I found another one. And then I got a bunch of little snail related things. And yeah, I think I like what they represent and they're slow and sensitive and take their time. <laughs> and um, they're the sort of creatures that you don't necessarily notice or appreciate. Yeah, here's one that I, I have. I, I get them as gifts now a lot. I'm trying but, to say, okay, yeah. Um, I feel like, yes, uh, and- I feel like I like, I have some affinity for this too. I like, I like creatures in nature who don't seem to try hard (laughs) and yet and yet they thrive and yet they thrive yeah they seem to be cutting (laughs) against some human tendency to constantly be doing and achieving and competing Mm -hmm. and it's like what's a snail doing snails just absolutely enjoying its little tiny life (laughs) i think the same reason we take hikes like you're not going anywhere in particular you're not making or spending your money. Yeah. You're just walking for the sake of it. So pole dancing, I have to believe this is like some sort of exercise class, right? Or do you have an actual yeah. do you have an actual pole in your house or do you just go someplace? No, I don't, but some of my classmates do. You need ceilings that are a little taller than what I have. Oh, you do. Oh yeah. And more space than what I have. But there's like a dance studio. Yeah, and it's good exercise. I mean, I had zero upper body strength when I started, and now I can do pull-ups, and I, I feel stronger. I feel like my posture is better, and it's just, yeah, I feel kind of kick-ass when I do it. Are there any guys in the class? Not that I've met so far. Non-binary folks, but mostly women. Mostly Would it be weird if a dude showed up? <laughs> uh, might kind of change the mood in the room a little bit, but... I guess it depends on what sort of attitude they bring to the class. What is the mood in the room? Um, it's kind of just like, let's have fun and like body positivity and people of all ages and shapes and just kind of getting to, I think a lot of it has to do with like feeling at home and and comfortable in your body without the male gaze around. So right. uh, I can't say for certain but i think that it might put a little bit of a damper on on that yeah i mean but also if there was a bro who was like truly wanted to learn how to pole dance and was into it and able to be vulnerable about it i would really respect that yeah i feel like that's i don't know i don't feel like that's something i could do i feel like that's that's like a i don't know i feel like it requires a level of coordination or something that is beyond me especially at this age <laughs> so i will not be well attending. have you ever wanted to go down a fireman pole i mean yeah when i was a kid i that was that was like a it's a clear memory of mine is that i got interviewed by my guidance counselor there was like some sort of thing where she videoed all of us saying what we wanted to be when we grew up and for some reason i Aww. said fireman so I, <laughs> was it because of the pole 
I mean, I think for little boys, that, that is part of the fun, right? You get to, and then the truck and the whole thing and the dog. Yeah. I think I was also really into the, oh, okay. the fact that they had a dog. I wanted a dog, so. Yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> um, but I, you know, I don't know. I just feel like it requires a certain, like, because it's not just strength. It's like you also have to have, I feel like there's some sort of like dance component to it or something that I, it would not look pretty if I was trying to pole dance. In fact, I can... But it would get better. You'd get better. <laughs> I, I, by the way, I want to... That's the whole point. I want to apologize. I want to apologize to listeners for uh, planting in their minds a visual of me attempting to pole dance. I feel like... <laughs> I don't know. I think you should try it. Like the first move you learn is the fireman spin. So okay. I just think that your inner child would really thank you for allowing them that experience and just who doesn't love spinning who it's doesn't just fun okay all right maybe I'll, t- I'll talk to my wife and see if we can uh we'll have a poll yeah, put in the atrium <laughs> yeah <laughs> what about like this tendency to sort of like take on new hobbies all the time is it does this mean you're cycling through like can you foresee yourself like you'll be done with pole dancing next year and you'll move on to something else like do you know what I'm saying are you constantly churning um I hope that that one sticks around because I recently saw like the the upper level pole dancers do their uh, performances. And there was this woman that like when she was clothed and had her glasses on, I thought she was I clocked her at maybe like 70. And then it was her chance to dance. And like she had her little outfit on and like her body was sick and her moves were sick and it was she was so good and i want to be that wait so she's 70 years old i think she was probably like upper 60s maybe 70 maybe in 60s i get that great at that but her but but that's what i thought she was that's what i thought her age was and it may very well be her age like based on her face but then her body was incredible and she was just beautifully so graceful and strong and it was just awesome to see and really inspiring so i'm like oh i want to keep doing this this is really awesome i understand i see that would get me there because i have that i have a similar response when i see older people who are still in great shape and are doing like super active like able to do the things they love or maybe to do and and to do like to do way more than like the typical person their age because I feel like if you just keep moving and you never stop and, until you absolutely have to, you're going to be in a much better situation as you age. Like, you yeah, know, I so, so I used to see this guy when I lived in Boulder, there was this guy who's kind of a legend on the trail, this one trail, he would do it every single day and he was like 88 and oh, he would wow. go, he That's was going, awesome. he was moving very slowly at that age. You know, it wasn't like he was cruising, but it was not an easy trail. And he had his two mm-hmm. hiking poles. And I mean, like rain or shine or snow or something. He was out there every single day. And I remember even then I was like, what, 22 years older, you know, in college as well. I just remember being like, That's who I want to be. <laughs> Yeah. You know. Yeah, me too. I mean, that helps your mental facilities too, like moving and yeah. All right. I want to stay healthy for a long time. I hope to live for a long time. I was destined to be an elderly woman. I think I already am at heart, so I want to live long enough to see that. You feel like you're an elderly woman? Like that that's like the your natural age? 
That's me. Yeah, yeah. My friends used to call me Gladys because I'm like a grandma at heart. <laughs> Looking at turtles and knitting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the pole, but the pole dancing. Sweaters. Pole dancing grandma is sort of a curveball. I mean, the knitting, the turtles, <laughs> the snail figurines. Um, I mean, I don't want to be totally predictable. Right. But then it's suddenly like <laughs> grandma's on the pole. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Hell yeah. That's cool. So what are you working? I mean, are you working on anything new? Like, are you just publishing this book and having a moment or there, is there YA stuff or yeah, other stuff in the I works? Had, um, I had plans to be working on a novel right now, but it turns out working full time and uh, promoting a book is not conducive to also writing a novel. Right. But that was set up as a reality TV show script. So also trying to uh, finagle that in terms of a format and formatting on documents that way is really frustrating. So I've wait, kind of taken a break from that. Wait, but. wait, wait. It's a novel, but it was written as like a reality TV show script? Yeah, it's it's a novel in the form of a reality TV show script. Are there scripts for <laughs> are there scripts for reality TV shows? Well, if there were, this is what it would be because it has all of those nods to the formula of of reality TV shows, like the confessional scenes and the chirons and the beats. So oh, right. it's like each chapter is an episode. I don't know if, you know, who knows if I'll be able to sustain interest in that long enough to like see it through. I don't know. But I'm also working on a couple essays, one of which is the snail collection essay uh -huh. um, for uh, object lessons. Oh, no, it's called Solid Objects for Hayden's Fairy Review. And also I'm trying to write an essay about my experiences, what I think was happening as a child where people tried to kidnap me. <laughs> Wait, that happened? Yes. Holy shit. <laughs> or from my childhood perception, at least like, you know, not really know, like you don't know if you've actually, if someone was trying to kidnap you until you're kidnapped. And luckily I was never kidnapped, but I, there were two instances in my childhood where it sure seemed like dudes were trying to get me in their vans. Really? <laughs> Yeah. And just kind of about like how that plays into fear and also perception of threat, because then I had this experience in this essay writing class in college where a classmate was talking about how she wrote about this experience where this man faced her in an alley and he had a gun, but she didn't actually see the gun. And he's like, well, how do you know for sure he had a gun? And she's like, I just knew. And for some reason that was like, oh, okay, well, maybe they weren't trying to lure me into their vans. But in one instance, I did corroborate this, uh, this experience with a friend who was with me and the guy was chasing us down the street and the van was like they had the door open and like he was like, it's going down and he was chasing us. And she was like, oh, yeah, they were totally trying to kidnap us and then there were there were news stories about similar occurrences in the neighborhood happening to other young women so how did you get away you just ran yeah. ran and i mean and this is the sort of thing where you know if you ever have experiences in your life where they feel cin cinematic sometimes in hindsight you feel like you made them up i don't know if you've ever had that experience but like 
we were running down nine mile road and like we were i was a sophomore in high school this this instance and uh we were skipping school so of course then i like had couldn't like tell anybody because I didn't want to get in trouble. But yeah, this guy like was first just asking us for money and then was like trying to grab me. And then this guy pulled up next to him and opened the door of his van. And he told the guy in the van, it's going down and pointing at us. And then we ran away and then we crossed a street and then traffic, like the traffic light changed. And we just kept running and running and running until we got to a 7-Eleven and found uh, a friend who gave us a ride home. Wow. So that were they working in tandem, these two guys? Was it like a- That's how I perceived it. That's how it seemed. But I'm also like totally questioning my memory too. Yeah. Um, and, and not even my memory, but like my interpretation of how things went. And that was her interpretation too. But who knows? I, I don't know. And I think that's the thing about fear too. You can, um, you might misinterpret situations. It is notable that there were headlines about the similar a similar thing in a similar vehicle happening around the same time to other people in the area but then the other one was when I was younger I was probably like seven and I was hula hooping on my front lawn and this guy I didn't know pulled up in in a van and was like hey can you show me how you do that and I hula hoop a little bit and then he's like, come closer. I can't see it. And I take a few steps closer and hula hoop a little bit. And he's like, no, closer. And then I just like run into my backyard. And that seemed pretty shady. Like, and he's Dude. like, oh, I, I know your family. I'm like, no, bullshit. <laughs> well, I mean, God, now I'm like, it's calling to memory. I had a conversation with a writer earlier this year or last year. It was all about these unsolved murders on the Appalachian Trail. Speaking of trails. But it was like an investigative journalism thing where she dove in and realized that there had been a serial killer in the area, in an area near the trail who had, like, there had been all these murders in a relatively small geographical area in Virginia. And the dude who ended up being, I think, dead. I don't know. But anyway, he would, like, there were all these stories of this guy just, like, walking up to little girls, like, while they were, like, sitting in their front lawn. Or like on their front porch and he would pretend to have magazines for sale, but mm. inside the magazines that would be like carved out, there'd be like a gun. I mean, like, and just like grab oh, it, grabbing them from their front porches and like throwing them in his car. You know, it's like terrifying to think of that. Yeah. Stuff. Yeah. Crazy. I mean, it's like, I, yeah, I don't want to, you don't want to like over dramatize situations, but it, those are things that happen. And I think, yeah, I, I like, was laughing as I was telling you, probably out of nervousness, but also self-consciousness about like, is this true or is this, uh, was I misreading the situation? But either way, they were shady situations and and those sorts of things do happen. So Sure. Um, it's crazy people. Crazy yeah. people. Yeah. So last question, you, like just circling back to this reality show uh, story that, or, you know, work that you're drafting, does this mean that you watch a lot of reality TV? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Real Housewives. I'm a big fan. Which one? Like, which... Really, the only two um, podcasts I listen to regularly. Well, now I listen to Help Existing with Rachel Krantz, which I know you were a guest on. Oh, yeah. Uh, because now that that is out, because Rachel's a friend of mine. but And also, it's a great podcast plug. Uh, but before that, the only two podcasts that I listened to regularly was Other People and 
this podcast called Bitch Sesh, which is these two comedians <laughs> recapping The Real Housewives. And it's so funny and so great. And yeah, that is that is my guilty or not so guilty pleasure is uh, bravo. Aren't there different iterations of Real Housewives? It's like Real Housewives yeah. of Jersey, of Beverly Hills. Like mm-hmm. what's your what's the best one? It depends on the season. Like Real Housewives of Potomac is pretty good. Uh, not so much this season. Real Housewives of Salt Lake City, the first two seasons are incredible. Is it <laughs> you like, gotta watch. Is it like, are they Mormon? <laughs> A lot. Several of them are ex-Mormon. One or two are still Mormon. Um, and one recently like has all of this legal trouble because She's like a cult leader. She started her own church or it was from her family. Her mother was the church leader and her mother left it in her will that all of her fortune would go to her granddaughter if she married her step-grandfather. So she married her step-grandfather to take over the church. And she's a character. She's a real housewife. And then another one is this woman who's now in prison for running this telemarketing scam. And it's just great. Like, Wow. It, it, speaking of true crime, it's kind of like a true crime show now. Well, yeah, so I've never close. watched, but I'll have to check it out. And, and I will look forward to yeah. uh, the real housewives of the self-realization fellowship i don't know when that's coming out <laughs> it's going to be an amazing iteration there thank sh- you for titling it for me <laughs> right. well shannon it's great to catch up with you and to see you and congratulations to you on the new collection and best of luck to you on all that you have going thank you so much great to talk to you again all right everybody there we have it that was my conversation with shannon mcleod Her new story collection is called Nature Trail Stories, available now from 30 West Publishing. You can find her on the internet at shannon-mcleod.com. She is also on Twitter. One more time, the book is called Nature Trail Stories. Go get your copy. The Other People podcast is offered freely. If you had a good time, if you would like to see this show continue into the future, please consider supporting it for as little as $1 a month over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's patreon.com slash otherpplpod. If you want to get some merchandise, a t-shirt, a sweatshirt, and so on and so forth, go to otherppl.com. If you would like to sign up for my email newsletter, it's free. It's once a week. You can sign up at otherppl.com or bradlisty.com. If you have a couple of minutes, please remember to rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. It helps new listeners find the show. You can watch my conversation with Shannon McLeod on the Other People YouTube channel. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button. It's free. And you can watch highlights on social media. Follow the show on TikTok, Instagram, or Twitter. The handle on Twitter is at OtherPPL. If you want to email me, the address is letters at OtherPPL.com. And if you want to read my novel, it's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. If you want me to read it to you, you can get the audiobook. All right? I think that's it. My next guest is going to be Alex Marr, who has a terrific and very powerful and very moving new work of nonfiction coming out. It is about, among other things, capital punishment. And it is called 70 Times 7. So stay tuned. I'll talk to you soon.